Good morning. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Hello. Welcome to Two Rivers. This is a great church. If you've never been here, there are always this many seats available. Um, that's not true at all. Sorry. But we're not going to three services. And so, listen, you just got to make room. You just got to make room. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Hi. Um, uh, this has been my home church. My name's Greg. I always have in my notes, welcome to Two Rivers and say good morning. <laughs> good morning. Um, it's been my, my wife and I, our family's home church for like six or eight years. We love it. Um, my brother, um, who was in the military, he always, and he's been moved around, he was like, Lord, this is my test for what church I will go to in the city that I moved to, because he was moving around a lot. He's like, the first church that I go to where someone invites me to lunch, that'll be my home church. And so he would just go from church to church. So he went to all different kinds of churches, because like he was in one, at one place, he, had, he, was, he was finally in a Catholic church, and he was just kind of sitting there, and um, these, these two ladies afterwards, turn, the old ladies, turn around, and it's kind of, it's, and, and they're like, hello, young man. And he's like, hello. And they're like, do you have lunch plans? And he's like, I do not. And they're like, and he's, so he's Catholic for a while. Uh, and I think, I think we have that vibe. I think we have that vibe. Um, I think we'll have, to, we'll have to work to hold on to it because we don't, have to, we don't have to set out and put away chairs anymore. And when we all had a hand in setting it out and putting it away, we noticed a little more easily who was new and whatever. We would bump into each other. So we have to work a little harder now that we have built-in comfies. Um, but I still think that's a vibe of us is we, we notice people and we just go, come to lunch with us. Um, my day is interruptible. So is my lunch. So I love that about our church. Um, we are wrapping up, like Jason said. Yep, introduce yourself. Did it. Um, we're wrapping up, like Jason said, the Resurrection series, um, which has been just a real delight. You may or may not have known um, that um, in the real world calendar, yesterday concluded Pentecost. Um, and so just in a real world sense, this, this series lasted the amount of time from Easter. If you remember back, like when was Easter? What did I wear? Like what was Easter? To now... That is the amount of time that Jesus was appearing and walking with his disciples and others, groups up to 500, etc. That's And that's why we did that in this, spirit, this period of time. So it was 10 days ago, from, from like literally today, Jesus would have ascended. And we were like, what? And then we waited in the city. And then the Holy Spirit yesterday would have come on all of us. We would have all been speaking new languages, talking about how dope and awesome Jesus is, and the church would have got real fat real quick. And that's the footprint, really. You can actually feel that, and that's why we did it. Uh, we're going to do a quick overview of this series. I am going to do a, oh, I hate PowerPoint. I made these. I have never in eight years of preaching made PowerPoint slides for anything. I hate PowerPoint slides so much. I love Andrew West, but I hate PowerPoint slides personally. Like, I don't hate his PowerPoint slides. If he worked for me, I would use PowerPoint all the time. Like, I'd be like, do this. You do this. But I just want you to know, I hate PowerPoint. But I did this for you. I did PowerPoint for you because I really want you to see the scriptures that we're going to look at today. I always come when I teach with a whole bay of scriptures, and I don't usually just show them. I just am quoting them, 
But today I'm going to show them. And I'm only going to show you a small chunk because I only have a small amount of time. But this is the post-resurrection reality. Day one, or the third day after crucifixion, all in day one. So yellow is, there are narratives for it. Orange, there's no narrative for it. But it's referenced in the text. Blue is today. Okay? That's my PowerPoint skills. Um, Mary from Magdala in the morning, she sees Jesus with some ladies. Peter and John go for a run. They don't see Jesus. Then Peter does see Jesus in orange. We don't know when or how it happened, but we know that because guys on the road to Emmaus, or, or maybe a married couple, or maybe ladies on the road to Emmaus, we don't know, two disciples on the road to Emmaus see Jesus, breaks bread, disappears. They run back to Jerusalem. The ten are in the upper room. And while they're telling them we saw Jesus, they go, I know, so did Peter. So that happened sometime like before that. Um, ten in the upper room see Jesus. One week later, still in Jerusalem, which is in the south of Israel, um, Jesus reappears for the sake of Thomas. Um, so now the 11 are together. Then one or two weeks-ish later, they do a six-day, five or six-day journey north to Galilee, 80 miles. Um, and somewhere in the next week or two, the, so now you're like two or three weeks in from the crucifixion, seven apostles are fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and John goes, this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared. So you go one, so you go one two, three. Um, and then some other time, from 1 Corinthians, um, Jesus appears to 500 people. James gets a personal audience with Jesus. Um, and then on a mountain in Galilee, Jesus gives the Great Commission. It could have been the Mount of Transfiguration. It could have been the, mount, the mountainside where he gave the, uh, his famous discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And it could have been up in Caesarea Philippi where pagan people believe the gates of hell were because it was this massive cave aquifer that a river flowed out of and they're like that's scary that's the gates to the underworld where he said Peter who do you say that I am and then he goes I'm gonna build my church on this rock right next to that because he's always plucking people from the path um could have been there but we don't know and then later still on day 40 so you got day one to day 40 but now they're back south in Jerusalem again so they've done another five-day journey back south to Jerusalem again from the Mount of Olives, which is a terraced garden, he ascends. So that's the 40 days. Then he goes, wait in the city. So they're already in Jerusalem, so they go back to the city. They wait 10 days. The Holy Spirit comes. They speak in other languages, and the church grows by 3,000, and people hear the, the gospel. So that's, that's the overview. Um, so that's where we're going this morning. i got to do, because Jason always does this. He goes, Greg, I want you to do the Ascension and the Great Commission. <laughs> He always does that to me. He always gives me too much. And so it's never my fault if I talk too much because he gives me too much. Um, it's like, hey, we want you to hit a home run and get a guy on third. And you're like, I don't, I'll do it again. And so um, I'm just teasing. But we're going to do them out of order. So what hap the order that they happened is up in Galilee, up in the north, think like lake life. Up in Galilee, Jesus goes like, hey, go into the world Tell everybody, all, I've got all authority. Tell everybody about me. Welcome everybody to come home. Then they go back down south, and Jesus is like, all right, I'm about to clothe you with power from on high. Scoop. And they, they're like, what? And he's like, I know. And they're like, where'd you? Okay. Um, and then it's. <sighs> I want to tell you how I prep to speak before I start this thing. 
Um, I normally live in the Gospels. All year long, every year, I teach through a Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I teach college students every week, almost every week. And so I live in the Gospels. So I'm always in the Gospels. Um, and so every week, I'm sitting in something and preparing, and it's really awesome. When I teach at Two Rivers, I have more time to just do whatever I want to. Like I, like I might know I'm gonna teach three, four, five weeks in advance, so I just do, and this is how I, pre- I prep. I prep by doing whatever I want to. I read it, and I'm just like a bird dog. They just release into the field. You're not hunting, so the dog's just sniffing around, peeing on stuff, chasing stuff, maybe taking point. And so I'm always looking for something that arouses my curiosity because that is a good indication to me that I am tracking with the Holy Spirit, who Scottish people would say is a lot more like a wild goose than a dove. And I'm obviously of that lean. Um, so I'm sniffing around, and I first was like, oh, we're going to look at all the places in the scriptures where like, there's any kind of ascension, like Jacob's ladder or like the Mount of Transfigure. I'm going like, to tie it to get And it was like nothing. I just, there was no scent on that. And I don't know if you know, um, in the springtime, how many of you like you love the scent of lilac? Those bushes just blow up in purple. Your neighbor has one. You walk outside, you're like, oh. And it just smells like a mysterious fairy woman <laughs> who's like beautiful, but unattainable, but maybe like tra- traceable. And so you're like, I'm gonna find you. Like, I'm, I'm married, but I'm gonna find you. It's not gonna work. Because you're a nymph creature and I'm immortal. But like, that is what my study for this has been like. I'm going in the text and I'm like, what is that aroma? I am coming after you. And so we're going to go, we're going to go through a walk among the lilies, if you will, which don't look that up, but we're going to go for a walk. And I'm going to show you all of the texts that the Lord has been showing me as I've prepped for this that have been washing me with a, with a pretty powerful confidence in his supreme dominance. Um, and it's awesome for me. It can be whatever it is for you. Uh, so we're going to look the, at the ascension. We're going to look at it in Acts chapter 1. Luke wrote the, wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts and they're kind of meant to be read together. Um, so Luke chronicles, oh by the way, I, the reason I had to make all these slides is because I have to show you guys a bunch of scriptures. And sometimes I come to church, and I don't have my, I got my kids here, I got my one wife, she's here, I've got a cup of coffee, I maybe went to the staff fridge and took a LaCroix, and I'm like, I am ready for church. Then I look down, I don't have my Bible, don't have my prayer journal, which I judge people based on those two things, I'm sorry, I'm judgmental. And I'm sitting there, hypocrisy, just soaked in compromise. And I'm like, what the dump? Then I look out, and sometimes I see those little things that I got one time. Like I see those little notebook things that are like, and I'm like, okay, but this isn't my thing. I have one of those, and there's no Bibles. I mean, there's a few Bibles here. Here's what I think we need. I think we need really nice Bibles. Like I look to the back of these pews all the time, and I'm like, where are the Bibles? And the reality is they're expensive. But the second reality is Sarah, Sarah Springer is just, she's just, wait, not Sarah Springer. You're sitting right there. And my wife is Sarah, but Sarah West, she gets busy. Sarah West gets busy. She can't do everything, but she is going to do this one thing. I don't know if she's here. She was, she's always listening to me from outside of the room, but she's going to buy us some nice Bibles. And I'm talking about really nice Bibles, like the kind where the leather is so soft that you're like, I might take this Bible home. Or you go, if I had a couch made of this, I'd be a leather couch person, like that kind of nice leather, because here's what we need. A, 
it's hard to get to church sometimes. True or false? Don't raise your hand. And sometimes when you get to church, you're like, I forgot something. Maybe you forgot that can-do spirit, that can-do attitude, but maybe you forgot your Bible. It'd be so great if we could reach in, pull out an awesome Bible, and then you're thinking, my brother-in-law needs a Bible, and if I gave him this one, he'd be like, bro, you love me, and you're like, I do love you, or somebody does, my church, and so we're going to get them. It's going to be really expensive. I don't know how we're going to pay for it exactly. I'm willing to make a one-time donation in this direction. If you want to make one, just say the Bible thing on the check that you're going to write, since we all write checks still. Um, Anyway, that's why I had to make so many slides, because I don't want you to think that I'm just making stuff up. I want you to see it in the text. I've got a Bible, and if you don't have one, I did it for you, and that's my love for you, because I hate PowerPoint. Okay, Acts chapter 1, this is the ascension. Here we go. I'm just going to read it. No, I'm going to read it from here. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. They were already there. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had a small picture and a small understanding of a supremely dominant being who was far greater than a tribal ruler? That's their question. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So he's not going to answer. He's like, we're not talking about that. Um, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, your enemies, the half-breeds, and to the ends of the earth. Okay. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So they're on the Mount of Olives. They're outside of Jerusalem. It's a few miles. It's like not that far, but it's like Bethany, Mount of Olives. He says this to them, and then it's like, he just starts, it's just, it's, you need more. You're like, Luke, Luke. You spent a lot of time detailing a lot of things. This feels like one of those things you could have just said more about. Whether you go to Luke 2450 or here, it's like, and then he just went up, and you're like, like how? Like slow, like fast, like spinning, like, like, like flying, floating. Nothing. Nothing much on it. And he goes, Jesus goes up, and then he's hit by a cloud. So it's like low cloud coverage or something that day. And you're like, what the heck? Like he's going up, and you're like, no, yes. I mean, what is happening? And then a cloud, and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Because you kind of want to know, like, when he goes into the atmosphere, how high is he going to go up? When do you lose sight of the balloon? Like, when do you lose sight of the balloon? And none of that. And Luke does this cool thing. He chronicles at the tomb, if you reverse back to me, when the people are looking in the tomb, Luke chronicles the angels going, like interrupting them going, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's going to meet you in Galilee. So the angels, they're looking, the last place they saw him or knew to find him in the dead spot. And they go, why do you, so like, okay. And now this exact same moment, they're looking up, there's a cloud, and it's like, they were, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? And you're like, because the dude just floated up into the sky, dude. And you just appeared. 
out of nowhere. It's one of those days. It's one of those days. Um, and then they go, but it's like, I love that Luke crutches these two questions. So like you're looking for Jesus in a tomb, last place you saw him, and they're like, why are you looking in there? You're like, well, because we were going to unwrap his dead body and rewrap it better so that it would, I don't know, that's just what we're, and then they're like, he's not here. And they're like, why are you looking in the sky? Well, because he just was talking to us, and then he floated away, and this stupid cloud came in. Like, they don't, Jesus rarely lets us fixate on the wrong thing. Um, he's always trying to keep us from worshiping the wrong thing also. And so these angels are like, look, guys, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And they're like, oh, okay. Because the way that he came was quiet. Little baby born unto a, a girl who everybody else said that she got, she, she, she started the business early with her fiance, which is why they had a whole story about her. Little babies born, and the quiet dance of celestial bodies, stars, beckons anybody who's watching, a king has been born. So you have some wise men come over the hills from the east to honor. You have some shepherds show up, and the whole thing kind of plays out, quiet. It won't be like that when he returns. Um, Jesus dressed himself in humility to come near us and to make himself approachable. But he stands, Scripture, in unapproachable light. Sometimes, because I linger in the Gospels so much, and I'm looking at the, the, the intimate details of Jesus in a, in a man's body, he, can, he, he is approachable and can be small to me. And what I have been tracing through Scripture is the reality of his dominant magnitude. Not just over Israel, not just over earth. He's not just an earth god either. Um, and it's been awesome. But he's so clothed in humility that it's easy to, to have a smallish, lovely, approachable understanding of him and to forget some of the boss dominance that is true of him who holds all things together and has everything under his feet. So, as I'm reading this text, the only scripture that's coming to my mind is from John 12, 32, I think. And I think we have it right here. This is five days before Jesus is crucified. I have this passage of scripture in my head. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And I'm going, why is that in my mind? Like, I, it's just stuck there. I can't go. So I go, I'm just going to read around it. So he's at this, he's at this feast. These Greek people, non-Jews, come and they go, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus goes, it's time. Now's the time for me to be glorified. The Greeks want in. And he goes through this whole discourse on like, oh, Lord, like my heart is troubled. Do I want you to save me from this hour? No, it was for this hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. Thunder, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God speaks from heaven. Another time when God speaks from heaven. And some of the people thought they thundered, and Jesus goes, this voice was for you. I didn't need that. That was for you. And it's like confusing, and then he goes, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces a harvest much more. Then he goes, and now we're here. Yeah, the voice is for you, whatever. Then he goes, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John goes, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, which is true. But as we study scripture, we also know that the meaning of the text is always layered. 
When Jesus kneels down and is drawing in the sand and a woman is caught in adultery, what's happening there? So much. It's so layered. You can find in Jeremiah where it says, I will write the names of those who oppose me in the sand. The meaning of what's happening in Scripture is always extremely layered because the text is deep enough to drown you, but shallow enough for a child to wade into and understand. Oh, it's mystery. It's mystery. And we're going to do some mysterious stuff this morning. Not magic, but mystery. Because there is mystery between heaven and hell. And we're going to talk about that. So I'm sitting here, and I'm going, okay, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all people to myself, all people, all people to myself. And then I go, oh, that's right. This is five days before he's crucified, 40 days of appearing, 10 days of waiting, and then Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? So 57 days later, Pentecost, which in the real world calendar concluded yesterday. I just want to be super clear about that. Pentecost was yesterday. Really great. It's really cool. Um, the Spirit of God falls on all the people that are gathered there. It's 120 people in the upper room. Falls on them. They all start speaking in different languages. God's awesome. God's glorious. He parted the Red Sea. Jesus is the bomb. You need to know him, all this kind of stuff. They come out, and Peter goes, people go, it's, they're drunk. And he's like, it's the morning time, you weirdos. Like, and we're, they're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken long ago by Joel. And he quotes it. Um, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. This is 120, though, but he goes, no, no, this is, this is that happening. Layers. Layers of meaning in the text, always. And he goes, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm like, all people, all people. And I'm not, and I just start smelling that smell. I'm tracing something that's making me curious. I'm smelling lilac. I'm going, where is this going? I want to show you some of the texts that carry with them um, a reality of supreme dominance for Christ Jesus as Lord. Knowledge is knowing what something says. Wisdom is knowing how it applies and when. There are texts that talk about, and we know these, God separating things like sheep and goats. Or separating things like good fish and bad fish. There are texts about heaven and hell and who and what may go where and how and when. There are also, and I'm familiar with these. I'm really familiar with these. What's been wonderful is to grow in my familiarity with the library of texts that go all. He will not lose one. And I'm going to take you on a walk through those. Because... There is mystery between heaven and hell. Knowing the texts is important. That's knowledge. But understanding how they apply and when is wisdom. The reason the Jews had a really hard time recognizing Jesus as Messiah is because the texts in the Old Covenant, in the, in the Old Testament, spoke about a God who would liberate them from their enemies and all this kind of stuff, and then quietly about a God who was also for the Gentiles. That's why Peter has such a hard time with it, even after Jesus was risen, because they were missing it. They knew them, but they didn't understand how it was going to apply. Does that make sense? Okay, here's where we're going. So I'm thinking about this. I'm like, okay, when he's lifted up from the earth, he's gonna draw all people unto himself. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, Peter goes, this is the beginning of that thing when God pours his spirit out on some of us. 
Nope, all people. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of all things. And here's how it's coming. All languages are being spoken right now, and everybody's hearing it in their own native tongue. And the church blossoms. So I go, okay, I want to know more about the supreme dominance of Jesus. So you know where I'm going to go. Colossians 1. We're going to look at it. Colossians chapter 1. The supremacy of the Son of God. This is one of the first passages of Scripture I had to memorize when I came on your life staff. I highly encourage memorizing this passage of Scripture. It is so awesome. Here's what it says. By the way, anything that's emboldened, I did that. Anything that's underlined, I did that. If it's highlighted, me. If it's italicized, I'm just trying to make you see it. I did all that. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Got it. Firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Boom. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every atom in your body is held together because of the supreme, dominant, reigning reality of a Lord and Savior, Elohim creator, Jesus. Every molecule, every fiber is held together because of Jesus Christ. It's why he can walk on water. Because he is not um, supernatural. He is absolute nature, nature, matter. He is absolute. I don't even get into it. But no, no, no. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him because God and Jesus are one. Anytime you want to think God and Jesus are two things, they're always one. God and Jesus are one. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. How many things? All things. All things reconciled unto God through Jesus, and they are one. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, so Jesus is supremely dominant over all, and all things have been reconciled in and through Jesus. That's awesome. All things have been reconciled in and through Jesus. Does it feel like that? Not always. So then I go, okay, he's supremely dominant. What is it that he's doing? What's the work that he's doing or accomplishing? So I go Colossians 2 and Romans 5, because Colossians is a great read. Colossians is just a great read, just as a side note. When you were dead in your sins and in the, insum- and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, so when you were dead, God made you alive. You didn't do it. God made you alive with Christ. You were dead, he made you alive. Just like Lazarus. Lazarus didn't ask for a miracle. Lazarus is just dead, real dead. Four days dead is when your insides start to liquefy. He was real, real dead. The miracle of Lazarus coming forward, if you do any kind of study on necropsy, it is crazy what had to happen for Lazarus to be like, I'm okay. I was not okay, though. One minute ago, I was literally not okay. My body was liquid on the inside and running out of me. But it's all good now. Because God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But it didn't look like that day of. It was so terrible day of that his disciples were nowhere to be found except the little one, John, standing there with the bold ladies. So what was, what was happening on earth 
to us with a worldly perspective was radically different than the coronation ceremony that was taking place as Christ victor established once and for all a new reign over all. Okay, Romans 5. For if while we were God's enemies, here's what you need to always think about when you read this. This is my posture in that statement. If while I was an enemy of God, raging against the machine, raging against him, we were reconciled to him. Way before you believed, way before your grandma prayed for you, way before anybody cared about anything, when you were raging, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? What? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, think Adam and Eve. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Have some. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, but we know that it was all because um, all have fallen short. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And that's extra credit. You got to go to 2 Corinthians 5.19 on your own. That's on you. And it, you don't have a nice Bible for it, but you make, it, take it, make a note. The law was brought in so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But what about, no, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. The high watermark is always going to be grace. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so Jesus is the one who's doing all this stuff. First John, first John. If we sin, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh, okay. The sins of the whole world have been atoned for, and all things have been reconciled unto Christ. Okay. First Timothy 4. This is a funny one. I like this one. I just threw it in there because it's good. This is a trustworthy saying. You take it to the bank. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There's another extra credit there if you want it. But we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own. Your belief was not yours. You did not find or stumble across some kind of amazing belief work that opened up God's mercy over your life. No, you're not saved through works. So that no one can boast, faith is a gift. Huh, okay. And then the most exclusive passage of Scripture in the Bible, John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oftentimes in the West, we start with an, in, with an exclusive theology. Who's out? Who's out? And what we might want to reckon with is... And there's scriptures around that. There are scriptures around that. But they're not the only ones. Just like in the Old Testament. There were scriptures about a Messiah who would overthrow the enemy. But they weren't the only ones. You slide that aside for a moment and you go, who's in? Who's in? What is accomplished through the radical obedience and submission of God unto God 
to come and make himself lowly in our midst that we might know him well. When you see a dad take a knee and be gentle with his little child, if you only saw that moment, you might go, and you were dumb, you might go, that guy's a freaking, he's a pansy, because you're hearing him talk gently about a little, listening to some problem. Then he stands up, and you cross paths with him, and you get a whole different kind of beast. Because right there, it was man to child, and with you, he's man to man. There is a reality of Christ that is far more impressive than we often have a chance to reckon with because he was so clothed in humility. It's eking out of him, though. At the transfiguration, his clothes are like lightning. They can't even handle it. God's speaking. Moses and Elijah are there. It's like Jesus, anytime Jesus like lights up, the dead are just there. Dead people are just there. Like when Jesus is being crucified, dead people are coming out of their tombs. Jason preached on this, walking through Jerusalem, being like, this guy, this is for real. And you're like, Uncle Ricky? And it's like, he's like, I got to go, though, because I don't know how much time I have, and there were two things. <laughs> I don't even, Jesus, I mean, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they go, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, all he says is, I am, he does not say, I am he. He says, I am. He says that little mini phrase of I am who I am and they fall back from the power of his presence. They stand back up again. It's like it is eking out of him. When John sees him in Revelation chapter one, his presence is so frightening and dominant that John falls down like a dead person at his feet. Just falls down dead and Jesus is like, I'm gonna help you. I'm awesome. He doesn't say he's awesome. Be like, it's okay. you don't have to be afraid. But this is scary. How awesome I am is scary. But you don't have to be afraid because I'm good. Oh, man. So Jesus is the way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. What does that look like, though? Philippians 2. Philippians 2. This, people think this was an old hymn in the church that they would sing. But good hymns are always taken from Scripture. You can find the meat of this hymn in Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 45. Here's the hymn, though. In your relationship with one another, Paul admonishes the Philippians in Philippi, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not even consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, and he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself even further than that by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Can you imagine it? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, ascension, seated or standing at the right hand of God the Father, depending on where you look at it in the text. Gave him the name that is above every name. Okay, here we go. We're coming to the name of Jesus, the gate. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way to life, and few find it. No one comes to the Father but through me. Okay, here we go. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a little different than the way some of the other texts read. And that's because knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is understanding how they work together and how they apply now. But every knee bowed and every tongue confessing, which is an important word, that's a big deal. Scripture says that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. That's what Scripture says. So what's happening right here? 
I don't know exactly. But there is mystery between heaven and hell. So this is happening. This is, this is happening. Then you okay. Let's look at Isaiah 25. Let's look at Isaiah 25. Let's see what the Old Testament has to say. And obviously, I am giving you a very small cross-section of a large library of awesomeness that stands next to another library that says things that might seem counter. But I'm not covering that today. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, which mountain? Um, the Mount of Olives, the ones that Jesus is going to stand between. There's going to be this crazy earthquake, end of all things, revelation. On this mountain, or you go to the throne room. Is this a different picture of what the throne room might look like? Because this is the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is the wedding supper of the Lamb. I thought that happened after the judgment. Huh. On this mountain, the Lord will provide a feast for, of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. What is that about? Go to Hebrews. The shroud. What is the shroud that keeps people from seeing Jesus as he is or believing that he... That he what is that? Is it sin? Is it unbelief? I don't know. But there are scriptures that talk about it, but we're not getting into it. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the, work, from all the earth. And then it just goes, the Lord has spoken. And that's a seal the deal kind of thing. The Lord has spoken, so I'm going to do it. So I am following this through the text without even trying. I'm not even trying, and I'm just smelling life lilac in a way that is deeply invigorating. And then I just have to show you this. This is just, this is just a fun off on the side. This is Ephesians 4. In Ephesians, Paul is writing, and then he, in parentheses, just does this little thing that I think is kind of awesome. He goes, and, and by the way, what does he ascended mean? And he's quoting from, he is quoting from Psalm, um, you can find it. He's quoting from a psalm. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And then he goes, he who descended to earth is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And I read that. I started crying one day. I was like, I definitely think about you as like an earth god. And when I read the Old Testament, I think about you as like a tribal god. You're like the king tribal god, but it's like you're like a tribal god. And some of us wrongly think about God as like an American God. Like he's like the American God, even though our country is so post, post Christian. God is not the God of America or the God of Israel or the God of earth. He is the God who fills the whole universe. You take a, a photograph from the James Webb telescope of an area the size of space, the size of a dime from our perspective, a billion galaxies in that space. He's not a Milky Way God. He's not like, I just can't out in the Milky Way. It's more expansive than you can even know. But everything, like he, he, is, he is, his dominance and authority is so supremely, unimaginably powerful that it is hard to get your mind around it because he also stoops low and listens to the cries of his children and names himself Emmanuel. God is with you. That is marvelous and miraculous and crazy. So, what's it going to look like when he returns? Let's look. 1 Corinthians uh, 15. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. We will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable. So think perishable goods, 
in the ground, rotting. What comes out? Imperishable, like the body of Jesus. Think you take a seed, you put it in the ground. What you put in the ground does not look like what comes back out of the ground when it grows. These are all the metaphors that they use. Jesus' body, by the way, when he rose, it still bore the marks of his suffering. But his arms worked, even though those ligaments were torn as they posted him up like a butterfly in a science experiment. That was all torn. His side was gouged in with a Roman spear, but he can eat fish and it's okay. God doesn't go, I'm just going to make it, we're going to forget all the bad stuff. God goes, I make all things new. That's what Jesus says. So he's walking around with these scars and marks. Anytime he's mentioned in the book of Revelation, he looks like a lamb that was slain. What does that mean? What does that mean for disability, theology? What does that mean? What does that mean for martyrdom? Him making all things new is different than you might think it is. It is not, I'm just going to cover everything like snow and all the rough places will be smooth. It is, you will still see and know, but I have filled it all. Because I am in all and through all and for all. I hold all things together and I am supreme. It all hangs. And it's why when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. When he returns, we will be changed. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And this is from Hosea. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then they sing this little chant. Where, O death, is your victory? Where are you at? Where, O death, is your sting? Where's that victory at? He swallowed it. Where's that sting, death? Let's find out what that is. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Didn't Jesus, didn't him who was not sin become sin so that I could become the righteousness of Christ? Didn't, didn't he become a curse to rescue all who were under the curse? Wasn't he the perfect law that brings freedom, the perfect culmination and answer to all the requirements of the law for me? Oh, death is swallowed up and the sting is dealt with. All is reconciled, all is atoned for, every knee is bowing, every tongue is confessing. What then remains? I wonder. Belief. We're going to talk about that. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, which is what? The Great Commission. Love your neighbors yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Tell people about me. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. How is that possible that your labor in the Lord is not in vain if you work really hard to make believers or disciples or whatever and no one listens to you? How is your labor not in vain as a parent if you pour yourself out over your children in sacrificial love, wearing a hole in your carpet through your prayer journey for them, and you meet them and they go, I'm not really into it. Or that's where you find them. How is your labor not in vain? Perhaps it's not about you. Maybe, I wonder, it's bigger than them. Maybe we are dealing with a God and Father who is more powerful than you know and whose willingness to to not lose one is more adamant than you could ever possibly imagine. It will come through Christ. It must come through Christ. For as in Adam, all die. 
so in Christ, all will be made alive. And this is scripture. I'm not writing things. I made this terrible PowerPoint so you could see some of the scriptures that whisper and sing of a massive, dominant, powerful rescue that show us a Jesus clothed in glory, tattooed legs, riding a white horse, robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth, standing victorious over a groaning and dying beast with broken teeth and an empty belly. And he throws that beast, that, that wretched creature of sin and hell and Satan, Jesus, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the enemy. The enemy's job is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the enemy. I don't want to be unnecessarily surprised if the rescue of Jesus is far more prolific than I could have ever known to imagine or understand. It, is, it has nothing to do with everything leads here. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ is like the black hole of dense matter that will draw all men unto himself. How that happens, I have no idea. There is mystery between heaven and hell. And are there scriptures that say stuff totally different? Of course they are. I am very familiar with them. I've preached them. But today is about growing in some familiarity with the other ones. I want us to know them both so that we can walk in wisdom as to how they apply and how we might and ought live in light of them. Does that make sense? Therefore, let's look at the Great Commission. Let's look at the Great Commission. Um, because if you're always, like, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you, you go, when I wake up in the morning, all I do is kill it on the Great Commission. All I do is baptize. I got a spray bottle. I'm ready. I'm at the, I'm at the grocery store. Girl, where are you going to go when you die? Tss, 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 Jesus. Mm-mm. Done. How many of you are killing it at the Great Commission? Because you're so lit that you got, like, no one's getting outside of your purview without getting baptized. No one is killing it. No one's killing it. Especially in a post-post-Christian landscape where we are all timid at offending someone and don't want them to think that we're that kind of Christian. And it's also because we don't know who we're dealing with. I don't know if you're an object of wrath. I don't know if you're destined or predestined to be with Jesus. I don't know if I have what it takes to convince you to believe. So we are timid or quiet, and we don't share anything. And the whole while, I just wonder if we knew that she is a daughter of Christ. I, everything has been atoned for. Everything has been reconciled. Her knee will bow. She will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Does that change how I interact with her when she is being a jerk to me or when I am being afraid because I'm believing lies? You bet it does. Why is Stephen allowing himself to be stoned to death by a mob of losers and going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What is his perspective? Ooh. You get a different perspective, you might find a different kind of joy in responding to the invitation 
and the command of Jesus to go call his own home. He's in Galilee. This is day, this is before day 40. So this is before the ascension. They're together, the 11 are together. They saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Who are you? Who are you? It's fine though. He doesn't kick them out. He's like, I see you. I even know about it, but I'm with you. I love you. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. Go do the dang thing. I just wonder if our perspective shifted a little bit away from who's out to who's really in. How that would change the joy of sharing actually good news. You're forgiven. Everything about you has been capitalized, culminates, lives in the heart of God. You don't know anything about it. Here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a, a sentence that will stand at any seminary in the world. No person can undo the work of Jesus Christ. You can resist him to your own destruction. We do not know what the word destruction really means, though. We don't know what that really means. We don't fully understand what that means. The height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's unsearchable, unimaginable love, Scripture. So, look at 2 Corinthians, look at 2 Corinthians 5. So then, how do we respond? Well, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. I thought that one died for all. And therefore, all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Okay, let's go. I don't know how it's all gonna work, but I can do that. I'm not, I'm not up against, I'm not pitted flesh against flesh. You are my brother. He has been crucified for you. Everything has been reconciled. Everything's been atoned for, and you are going to whisper, he is Lord. I don't know how it's gonna happen. Are you gonna get a Thomas moment? I don't know. You are going to believe. There is a mystery, and I'm not, I am not getting into these texts today. I am not getting into the bay of hell and separation and gnashing of teeth, and they're almost always right there near the all, every, all, every. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is, how do I apply this right now? How did Jesus live? How did Stephen live? How did Philip live? How did Peter live? Why'd they all let themselves be killed? If we're trying to rescue the whole world, why are you going so slow, Jesus? If time is of the essence and we're supposed to be making believers, why'd you stay in an area geographically the size of Rhode Island? You know what Jesus looks like? An NBA player shuffling through the airport all the time in the world because he's a boss. Why is he going so slow? God is not slow as we understand slowness and keeping his promises. He would that none would perish. If he would it, could it? You do it. You do it. 2 Corinthians 5. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. But I thought that he was not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, which is what? You're forgiven. It is finished. He has done it. Come home. Always been the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You just need to know what you're talking about, and you need to know who you're talking to. Then we might start doing it. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf come home, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. That smell has been the only thing I can smell as I've been preparing for this. Jesus' coronation ceremony was on a cross with thorns, agony. His ascension was hidden by a cloud. When he comes back, all will be laid bare. Nothing will be unclear. And I don't want to be unnecessarily surprised if the supreme dominance of a universal ruler who loves fiercely and dies courageously and lives humbly is far more capable of dominating hell, Satan, and sin than I could have ever possibly imagined. And it will happen through the reality of Jesus who is over all, in all, and through all to the glory of God. That is a mystery, and I do not understand it. I know the texts. I am trying to understand in wisdom how they apply. And it is fun to enjoy the library of something that I probably haven't given myself as much permission to go into as I ought. And it is fun to feel that invigorate my willingness and my joy to tell the good news. I hope that this stirs curiosity and wonder in you to go on point on your own as you chase the Holy Spirit through the word of God to discover and know him more and more. Lord, thank you for your word, for the reality of the rescue of Jesus that is mysterious. Paul was talking about the mystery of Christ that was hidden for the ages Jesus, we want to know you. We want to be led by your spirit. We want to be rooted in truth and mobile in the spirit of God. We want to be carried along by the love of Christ, which compels us to call people, be reconciled, come home. You could not possibly be at war with God, and he could not possibly be at war with you because he has closed the gap himself. Jesus, would you be lifted up in our lives, and would you draw all people unto yourself. Jesus, would you be lifted up in this church and draw all of our community unto you? Would you be lifted up, Jesus? We worship you. Amen.